many of those things that Pastor Keith mentioned as we go through the month of December. Um, when you came in today, you might have noticed a, a special or a different object here in uh, our gathering time together this morning. And I want to thank uh, my friend Dennis Waldy for working on that. It's over to my right, uh, your left over here. It's actually, you know, when, when I sit in my office and come up with ideas, they all seem very, very simple to me. And uh, then I go down to Landscape Depot and they become a little more complex because the guy says, you can't fit that many rocks in your pipsqueak little car. Uh, and so we have to come up with other solutions. But Dennis Waldy uh, has a, a truck which he graciously uh, went down to another friend's property and picked up, uh, I don't know, a couple wheelbarrows full of rocks to uh, build for us uh, this morning an altar. Uh, and uh, again, I tried to do it but was woefully inadequate. So Dennis just said, step back, let the experts build something that will actually last and not tip over Brad. So I took his advice. And you might wonder, well, why in the world do we have an altar here uh, together this morning in our gathering? And you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Abraham in Genesis. And we'll remember that Abraham was called to offer up that which had become most important to him in his life on an altar. And when you read through the narratives in the Old Testament, an altar is a place that has two basic functions attached to it. One is for sacrifice and one is for memory. Whenever you come to a place, for example, in our Momentum Journal reading this last week, we were reading through the story of Jacob and twice in Jacob's story, God meets him in a powerful way. And Jacob both times says, do you know what I'm going to do right here? I'm going to build an altar of memory so that I can remember that this is a place where God met me. And so later on today, you'll have that same opportunity to physically act out uh, to those two realities, a place of surrender and also a place of uh, memory. But before we get there, I want to go through a few uh, narratives this morning that will help us understand what it is that God might be uh, calling us to today as a community and as individuals. So let's pray together as we begin. God, we say thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in this place today. We say thank you for the gift of your son Jesus, which we have sung about. And as we come through this time of Advent, we prepare our hearts and our minds and our homes and in every way our lives to receive and to be ready uh, for that yet again reminder of the powerful, powerful gift that you gave to us in giving yourself to us at Christmas. And so Jesus, as we come into this place today, as we look into your word, uh, we agree together that your word is truth, that it has authority in our lives, and so we submit ourselves to it, Jesus. We pray that uh, as we look into it, that you would teach and instruct us by your spirit, that you would speak to each one of our hearts in this place this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, what your experience was in your uh, growing up years, but I remember coming to a place in my life, it was probably about middle or late high school, uh, or maybe where I decided, or maybe I should clarify that it was decided for me by my teachers in high school, my English teachers in particular, that I needed a little bit more culture in my life. Um, I remember talking with one of my teachers and they were, I was talking about the shows that I was watching and the music that I was listening to and they said, listen, nobody uh, that does anything important in their life watches those kinds of shows and listens to that kind of music, which I just thought, you know, 
That's every teenager. That's, that's just what we do. And uh, so I realized, though, something came out of that conversation for me. I realized at least one thing that I wanted to change, and that was the shows that I was watching and the music that I was listening to, it wasn't getting me any dates. So at least I was going to make some significant changes to try and at least get a girlfriend at some point in high school. So I decided that uh, if I was going to try and impress the ladies, that what I should do is kind of go really for some elements of high culture, like get interested in some really sophisticated things. So I decided that I was going to become interested in poetry. Uh, to date, that had not been something that had interested me at all. And uh, I didn't choose Shakespeare. That was a little bit over my head. Art history seemed a little out of reach as well. So I thought, at least poetry, that I thought I could understand. So I thought, okay, well, uh, everyone that I know who is cultured has a favorite poet. I should get a favorite poet. That would be something that would really impress the ladies, just to be able to, you know, at, a, at the drop of a hat, quote some kind of poetry. So I thought, okay, I should be familiar enough with this poet to be able to drop references from this poet into casual conversation so that that could really impress people with my knowledge of the world and the breadth and depth of my cultured experience. So I began the hunt for a favorite poet. And this was a little bit of a harder task than it seemed, because those of you who teach or majored in English uh, know what I did not know, and that is that poetry is deceptively simple in that it might seem like it's accessible, but there's layers there, and they go deeper and deeper and deeper, and the serious student understands and appreciates those layers, and the person who just wants to get a favorite poet to impress the ladies does not get those layers at all. So I decided for me, I should look for somebody in the classy but accessible category of poetry, and uh, I settled upon the American Poet Laureate Robert Frost, because I thought, you know, Robert Frost, he's won a few Pulitzer Prizes, I don't know what those are, but they seem very impressive. Uh, he went to school at Oxford, that doesn't sound that bad, sounds like he could be impressive. So I began to read some of Robert Frost's poems, and I thought, hey, this is good. I understand these, I grew up in a, in a small town in northern BC, a lot of his poems are very rural in their orientation, so I totally got it, at least that's what I thought. They're mostly set in rural context, but the more you read Robert Frost, the more you come to understand that they're set in very simplistic concepts in some ways, but they're actually very complex. And Robert Frost embeds into his simple poems all kinds of contemporary questions about the meaning and purpose of life and contemporary values and comments on all kinds of sociological experiences. But I just thought they were easy to memorize and they rhymed fairly well, So, because he tends to write in iambic pentameter. So uh, one of my favorite poems of Robert Frost's became his work, The Road Not Taken. So listen as I read it for you. Again, it's a fairly straightforward poem. It says this, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood might be familiar to you, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, and then I took the other, just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. That part confused me. I wasn't sure what he was really trying to say there at all. Uh, and then he goes on and says, And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black, which I thought was a little bit weird too, because he had just said that they were worse for wear and that they'd been worn, so what, is, what was going on? Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way 
leads on to way I doubted as if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverged in a wood and I, here's the line that really most of us would be familiar with, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. Still today, I'm, I'm struck by the simplicity but yet the poignancy of that poem. It seems fairly straightforward. You stand at a crossroads and you choose which road to take and he's communicating something about the fact that no matter which road you take there are consequences both intended and unintended that happen as a result of that choice and standing there in that place. And subsequent to the choice that you make at the fork in the road, way leads on to way meaning that if you choose a particular fork in the road, then you're going to come to another fork in the road. And it kind of predetermines in some ways the course that you'll take from that day onward. And you may not ever get back to that place where you make or at that fork in the road to have the opportunity to make that decision again. And so once you go down one of those roads, you're committed for all intents and purposes. And in many ways, that poem is a decent metaphor for our current teaching series uh, entitled Counterfeit Gods. We've been looking over the season of Advent as we come into this time of Christmas and prepare our hearts and our minds. Uh, we've been looking at how we might look at and address the things in our lives that might supplant or crowd out Christ as the true source of joy and hope and peace and purpose and meaning. And so we've been, as we've gone through these last number of weeks, we've been trying to name and provide strategies for how you as an individual and for how we as a community might go about engaging in the process of obeying the second commandment. And the second commandment from Exodus chapter 20 is, you must not have any other God but me, God says. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. And so we've been trying to identify what would some of these things look like in contemporary Western culture. We have a picture in our minds often as what we think of ourselves as fairly sophisticated, even poetic people, that oh, idolatry is kind of a, it's for backwards cultures that set up little shrines and things in other parts of the world. And that's kind of where our mind goes when we talk about idolatry. But we've been working hard over the course of the last number of weeks to identify that really, in some ways, in Western culture, we might be more guilty and have more idols than any other culture and than any other time in history. We just pretend that we don't because we like to think that we're very sophisticated about it. And so what are some of these ones, just as we've gone through the course of the last couple of weeks, just shout out, what are some of the things that we've identified that might vie for our affection? And we've defined idolatry as saying it's taking something that is good in our lives and turning it into something that is ultimate, which it was never intended to be. So what are some of the things that we've addressed over the course of the last couple of weeks? Money. Yeah. Yeah, two weeks ago, Al talked a little bit about what that looks like in terms of greed and in terms of a plan, a concrete plan, to be able to say there are specific ways in which we can name that and move away from that as having a dominating effect and control in our lives. Yeah, what else? 
family. Again, something that's good. And so all of these things are things that God has given to us for us to enjoy, but we have a tendency to take things that are good and turn them into things that are ultimate. And so sometimes we talked about the fact that we can actually begin to place our family and burden them with the expectations of being an ultimate source of joy and comfort in our lives. Yeah, what else? Love. Yeah, last week we talked about relationships. We talked about love. Pastor Keith walked us through that passage and said, you know, there are things and times when we can, we can place unhealthy and unreasonable expectations on those that we're in relationship with in our lives. Yeah. So there's all kinds of things that we've been naming and addressing and trying to say these are all good things. But when we take them into that place of ultimate authority and we begin to organize our lives around them and they begin to crowd and push out God as that one of having preeminence in our lives, whether it's money or family or greed or debt or fear or love or relationships or any other thing, uh, then those things have become idolatrous for us. And the tricky thing about the second commandment is that literally almost anything has the potential to draw our hearts away from God. Because the definition of idolatry is taking something that's good and making it into something that's ultimate. Something that we believe will lead us to satisfaction and joy and hope and that give us only God, what God has intended to give us and what we're designed as human beings to receive only from and in connection with him. And we could name many, many, many more items, I'm sure, than we have opportunity to do so through the course of our series. Next week, we're going to have some fun uh, with the concept of control and the idol of control, how sometimes we set our lives up in such a way that that becomes for us our plan and our tight grip on the future becomes something that creates an idol in our heart. And the kids are going to help us by telling us some of the stories of a couple of kings from the scripture. But this morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion together, I want to highlight one of the most perhaps subtle, but maybe one of the most insidious idols in North American culture today. And for many of us, it goes unaddressed because it's so pervasive in the world in which we live. But we're going to, this morning, confront the idol of comfort in our lives and ask, what would it look like to stand at that crossroads and choose between something that God might ask us to do and between something that we might feel would lead us to a place of increased comfort in our lives? And I want to suggest to you today, and we're going to look at Philippians Uh, chapter 2. I want to suggest to you today that one of the gods of contemporary suburban culture is the elevation of comfort, particularly personal comfort, to the place of highest prominence in our decision making. And I suggest this because one surefire way that you can recognize an idol in your life is that you are willing to take any step to rearrange your life around it. It becomes the chief priority to which all other priorities submit. 
And for many of us, we are willing to organize and reorganize our lives around comfort above all else. Now, let me just define a little bit of what we mean when we talk about comfort here. I'm not talking about comfort in the sense that you have enough money in your bank account to pay your terrace bills so that you have heat in your home so that you can be comfortable when you are enjoying a meal together or enough money in the bank account so that you can buy food so you don't go to bed hungry at night. What I am suggesting is that comfort becomes an idol for us when it gets to that place where you come to a fork in the road, big or small, God asks you to do something, and you choose safety over godly risk and holy adventure. And when in your heart and your head you begin to ask the question, not what would God want me to do in this particular situation, but what would make me the most comfortable? And here's the reason why we've chosen to include comfort as one of our idols, perhaps the idol that needs to be dethroned in our lives and in our community. Because that type of question, when you come to that place where you have a decision to make as particularly a person who says, I want to follow Jesus in my life. When you come to that place where then you're required to take a step of obedience to follow Jesus, and the first thing that comes into your mind is, I can't do that because and then insert whatever particular explanation might be coming to your mind at that point, then the idol of comfort needs to be addressed and challenged in our realities. I'll give an example from me this last week. So um, I'm, trying to, um, I'm trying to grow in, in my uh, prayer life. I'm trying to get up a little bit earlier. Uh, we have a, a team of people that prays regularly for things, and I thought, you know, sometimes that I'll get that email, or I'll write it in my momentum journal, and I'll totally forget about praying for it. So I'm trying to be more disciplined about getting up a little bit earlier and spending some time going through my momentum journal, praying for those things. So the alarm goes, and in that moment, my first thought is not, oh Jesus, I'm so glad to start this day with you earlier than I'm normally accustomed to starting this day with you. How excited I am to be a part of praying for these people. This is going to be a great, a great adventure. My first thought is, oh Lord, and not in the spiritual sense of the word, I don't think that this, I have a, I would like to, yeah, I'm just going to stay in bed for another, you know, 35 minutes this morning. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Hit the snooze button a couple times. So, I mean, right in that moment, comfort is beginning to insert itself as a, a preferential decision in my life. And that's just a small example. You can think of many, many times and experiences. And we're going to have uh, Daryl come in a few minutes and share with us a little bit about what that process has looked like in their lives. But that kind of thinking in that moment where God asks you to do something that you know he's asking you to do, and you say, well, I claim to follow Jesus. I want to take steps of obedience to him. But it might make me a little less comfortable than I currently am. So therefore, I'm going to say no to that. That type of thinking is profoundly problematic for those who claim to follow Jesus. Because if you say, I have surrendered my life to Jesus as my forgiver and my leader, but you're completely unwilling to do what he asks you, to go where he sends you, to speak when he says speak, to release resources when he says to release resources, then the scriptures say that you're not actually walking in obedience to Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, 
You will obey me. You'll do what I ask. And so if every time God asks you to do something, you choose comfort every time, you've created and nurtured a powerful system of thought in your heart and in your head, which will prevent you from being obedient to what it is that God has for you in your life. And over time, it can create a powerful death grip on your heart so that you begin to cease hearing what it is that God has for you. I've been noticing this over the course of the last couple of months in my own life, that when God asks me to do something, when God says, right, I want you to be generous with the finances that you've entrusted to me, immediately my first thought is, I have 12 reasons, really, really airtight reasons, God, why this is not a good time for you to ask that of me. And so I choose comfort over sacrifice. Or when God asks me to be bold and step into a conversation with somebody who's sitting beside me on a plane, I, I grumble about inside how my first response is, I had a book that I really, really wanted to read. I don't actually, I mean, as much as you think I'm an extrovert, and I am, I don't actually enjoy talking to people on airplanes. I would much rather read on an airplane, put my iPod on, and just kind of go through my flight uninterrupted. Um, and so I'm you know, grumbling about that instead of saying, yeah, sure, all right, Lord, I, I would be obedient to that. Uh, I grumble inside when... Uh, or, on the flip side of that, when people uh, send me nice emails and tell me what a great job that I'm doing, it feeds something dark inside of me, just like I experienced in high school. That need or that desire to impress people. And so when those emails come, I like those emails, and I think, yes, that's right. I, I think I am doing a good job at this and at that. And so I've been noticing over the last couple of months is that those things are beginning to cut off the work of God's Holy Spirit in my life. Because I'll say yes to comfort and no to risk more and more and more. And so what we've been driving at in this series is that when we take any of those things and we begin to place them in a place of authority and priority in our lives, they become powerful idols that whenever we stand at those forks in the road, that's the conversation that guides us down the paths in our lives away from God. And just like in Frost's poem, what happens then is way leads on to way, leads on to way, and we become over time less and less and less able to step out in faith and obedience and take risks for God. And so I want to look at a scripture this morning, and I'm going to start reading in the book of Philippians, uh, in chapter 1, at the very end of chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me. Uh, we'll come up on the sky screens when we get to verse 5 of chapter 2. Uh, if you didn't, uh, don't have a Bible, and uh, we'd love to provide one for you, they've got them at the Welcome Center, and so please stop in there uh, on your way out and just pick one up. That would be our, our gift to you, and we'd love to uh, connect with you anymore if you have any questions about what that looks like. Uh, or if you don't have a copy of our Momentum Journal, which is a strategy to help get you into uh, the Scriptures on a regular basis. So I'm going to be reading in, in Philippians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 29. And so thinking about this from the lens of comfort, the writer says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but you have also been given the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, 
and you know that I am still in the midst of this. Therefore, if there's any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy or make my joy complete by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. See, what I was noticing in my life over the last number of months is that my heart was not tender and compassionate. That my, my fellowship with the Spirit was not where I felt like I wanted it to be. I was becoming increasingly selfish. I was increasingly wanting to impress others. I was increasingly, verse 4 says, don't look out for your own interests. Take an interest in others too. But you must have the same attitude in verse 5. How do you combat all of those things? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. And here we get into our Christmas narrative. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. And he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. And I'm going to do something that normally I wouldn't do with a text of this nature, but I'm going to uh, argue from the antithetical or the hypothetical antithetical. If you flip this text around, what would the questions be or what would the reality be? I want to ask us to consider if Jesus made the choices that I normally make in my life where comfort became the driving value or the modus operandi, what would Christmas look like? And I'd like to suggest for you that we would have a very, very different Christmas story if Christ's highest value in this was comfort. What would it look like, for example, if Christ had clung to equality with God in verse 6? refusing to or feeling that it was somehow beneath him to take on human form. What would it look like if Christ would have refused to relinquish his divine privileges in the name of heavenly comfort? And so I'm, the whole going to earth thing, the whole plan of redemption as it's been articulated in the mind of God from before time immemorial, I, it just sounds so desperately uncomfortable. I think I'll make a different choice. What would our Christmas narrative look like if Christ had said, all right, I'm willing to come to earth, but I'm not going to come as a humble servant. I'm going to come as a conquering hero or a comfortable king. I will influence from a position of power and authority and strength. And that is how I will accomplish the plan of redemption we would have a very, very different Christmas narrative. The road not taken results in what we see pictured for us in one of the earliest statements of Christian doctrine and thinking. That, this, that we are called as people who claim to follow Jesus to have the same attitude that he possessed. Though he was God, he didn't think about equality with God as something to cling to. He took a humble position. He was obedient to what his father had asked 
of him. Even to the point, as chapter 1 says, of our participation and call is to share in his suffering. So what would the road not taken mean for you and me? Our redemption, our very opportunity that we have to be in right standing with Christ is predicated on Jesus rejecting the road of comfort in favor of the road of obedience, which involves sacrifice and suffering and risk. And when we read a text like that, it can be easy for us to say, all right, that's fine, Brad. Uh, I don't have to make those kinds of choices. I will never have to wrestle with the fact of, do I need to consider equality with God something to be grasped? I mean, it's arrogant to even presume that statement or that choice. But the choice between comfort and obedience is around you and I every single day. You have the choice today, and I have the choice today to respond and choose one of those two paths. And so I want to introduce you uh, to a family that's on this journey of discovery right now. And I'm going to ask Daryl if he would come up and share a little bit about some of his experiences and processing of this question, particularly of comfort and what that looks like and what you feel that God has been calling you guys to uh, as a family. And so take us, take us back a little bit, Daryl, into, into your life and, and journey and experience and give us a little bit of a window uh, into your story about things that God's been teaching you guys. Well, right um, as of a month ago on Remembrance Day, which I think is somewhat fitting, um, because I'll have an annual reminder. Um, God asked me to leave my job of seven and a half years and didn't tell us where we were going, but he just said, you need to go. And I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to sit here and say that he said that to me and I did it right away. Uh, and I did this time, um, but this wasn't the first time. So take us back a little bit in your story and your journey. Um, it started about, well... Coming up on five years now, um, we had a son uh, born in January of 2005, and he passed away after two and a half weeks. And God used that to, to teach us a, a lot of lessons, um, and one of which was identifying, you know, or challenging us on what we thought life was about. Um, and it, out of that came that I needed to leave where I was. It was kind of a poisonous environment for me. It was, you know, somewhat of a company of friends type situation. Um, surround yourself with good people and good things come from you and surround yourself with bad people and you have to work very hard to, to stay righteous. Um, and I didn't, I, I took the path traveled in that scenario simply out of, out of comfort and fear. Um, and it's, it's been a very challenging three years from there um, basically God's kind of taken me to the end of myself, um, emotionally, physically, intellectually, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's basically made me as, show me as small and weak and feeble as, as I am, and then show me what I can be with him, right? So it kind of taken me to the end of myself and said, okay, here's where you went, here's how creative you are, here's how smart you are, and here's where you're going to go. Uh, when you when you listen to me, here's how good your plans are. Um, so, uh, for instance, I've been pursuing photography for 12 years, and he's used that as a tool to say, "Here's how good you are on your own," uh, which is mediocre. 
at best. Um, but here's how good you're going to be if you let me. So, so when you came to those forks in the road, what were some of the barriers that you felt or what were some of the discussions that you guys had as a family and as a couple to try and wrestle with, okay, which, what decision are we really making here? Well, the first one that comes out, it, it's, it was largely comfort-centered uh, money. Well, where are we, how are we going to pay for the bills? How are we going to do this? Um, you know, and, and in the past several years, God's been slowly working on us in terms of um, changing how we value money and, and how we view those types of things. And, you know, fortunately, he's chosen the, the slow road with that one, which is nice. Um, I, I'm glad he didn't. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad he didn't drop me on that. Um, with, uh, with, in terms of comfort and control and, and my need to plan everything, he's kind of gone Old Testament on me. and uh, <laughs> So I, I feel somewhat like, like Jonah in the sense of, uh, in the sense of um, you know, resisting, resisting, resisting to the point of, you know, okay, I'm in a boat and basically saying, okay, I know I need to jump and just, be obedient. Um, I have no idea what it looks like. Um, but I know it means putting myself in situations that are uncomfortable, um, this one being, this being one of them. Um, and, you know, just being a vessel. So, you know, in, in my journey, as he's been breaking me down and I've been, I've been saying, hey, Lord, just show me what I'm supposed to be and, and you know, let your spirit kind of guide me. It's, it's been breaking down the lies that I've you know, I've told myself and believed, believed of myself that, um, that I need to plan and I need to be controlled with money, that, you know, I'm, I don't have anything to offer anybody, so I kind of shut myself off from people. And he, he's used people here, and, and a kind of an amazing thing happens when you share with people at a deep level, they share back, and you're both kind of enriched. It's, so it's been teaching me the value of the family that we have, the community that we have. Um, basically somewhat making me make countercultural decisions. Um, so if our culture are somewhat like George and uh, George Costanza and Seinfeld making anti-Daryl decisions basically now, what would I normally do? Stop, stop what I'm doing and think, okay, what would the opposite be? And start there. And, you know, I make the odd good decision, so I'm not going to make the opposite every time. But um, really kind of challenging myself too to think, the opposite of what I would or what my culture, the culture says that we should do. Um, so leaving a job and not knowing what you're going to do. Um, exactly, good example. Mm -hmm. And for you guys, for you guys as a couple, what have some of the some of the key learnings that have come out of that for you guys? When, and what are the conversations look like for you and Jody in that? It's been interesting that, you know, I, I came to a point. Um, There's a bit of an incident at, at work in September and. I came out from it and was kind of really wrestling. I was like, I feel like God's asking me to go. And I, I was, it was difficult to talk to Jody about it. And she looks at me and she's like, we just need to go. And I don't, I don't care, we'll figure it out. And I was quite surprised because she's usually the one who would pull back and say, well, what about this and what about that? Um, so it, he's really granted us a lot of peace. Um, Lots of people have asked me as I've been sharing, um, aren't you scared about this? Aren't you scared about that? And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so at peace that I'm actually, I'm scared that I'm so at peace. Like, I'm <laughs> testing myself 
am I delusional? Mm. Do I, <laughs> is there something wrong with me? Um, I remember that piece five years ago when Zam died, that we were just unnaturally at peace. We should not be this content or this whatever, uh, given the situation we're going through. Uh, but it's kind of funny that in the, you know, in five years I had kind of forgotten that lesson and needed to be smacked upside the head again with it. So. Well, Daryl, I want to thank you for sharing that with us. First of all, because a lot of people um, wait until the journey is complete and they have a nice little happy capstone to put on the story that, oh, Jesus did this for me and isn't it wonderful? So I, I really appreciate the fact that you're sharing this with us while you're in process uh, so that we can journey together. And then secondly, just knowing you a little bit more, I mean, you're an introvert, so this is about like number 972 on your list of things that you would really like to be doing um, yeah. in, in, terms of your, in terms of your life. And so I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. It's also a good example of what God's peace looked like because I'm actually speaking and completely comfortable up here. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> well, let's thank Daryl for sharing that with us. I appreciate that. One of the things that I have just deeply admired in Daryl and, and Jody's uh, journey is that they've come into that place where they've been willing to challenge and give up those things that were barriers for them. Uh, and you heard about him talking about comfort and how, what does that look like? And then on the other side of pushing through that, experiencing a sense of God's peace in that. And so I'm not sure what that particular... Uh, environment might look like for you. Maybe for you, maybe you have a dream or a picture of your life that you're holding on to desperately in an attempt to try and pursue it and make it happen at all costs. And maybe today God's going to say to you, you know what, I need you to give that dream up to me. That dream is preventing you from walking in obedience to me. And I need you to lay it on the altar. Maybe it's something for you, maybe in your life and experience, maybe you sit on your couch, comfy couch, night after night watching TV, and you know that God has asked you to invest your time and your life in something of a meaningful relationship with people around you. And you think, well, if I did that, then I'd have to actually get up off of my couch and make some meaningful investments. And that seems like a scary, difficult thing for me as an introvert to do. Maybe your comfort and your uh, idol is your education or your achievements. And you think to yourself, these are the things that God has given me. They're good gifts. Why should, I, why should they be a barrier in doing what it is that God wants me to do? But maybe you've become so enamored with your education or your achievements, saying, I built this company to such and such a place, or I'm a young leader in my field, and I'm really going places. Maybe that's becoming a barrier to you because you're so enamored with that as a source of comfort and structure for you in your life that maybe you need to give it up. Maybe God's saying to you, hey, listen, um, you need to release more resources. You need to head down with the team to Guatemala in 2011, and I wanted to show you uh, how to invest your life in those that are living on the margins and who are disabled. Maybe that's a scary thought for you. 
Maybe your comfort idol might be what we talked about last week, your relationships. Maybe if you're single, you think to yourself, well, I won't be content until I get married. Maybe if you're married, you think, well, I can't be content until I have kids. Maybe if you have kids, you think, I'm not going to be content until my kids leave the house. (laughs) Or you think you have a plan for your kids' lives. And if they were to turn out differently than that, that you would experience a profound sense of being shattered or broken on the inside because you're the one that's going to make this happen. And you're going to raise these kids in a way that's going to make them into the people that you want them to be. My sense for us is just we've been praying and and talking through what does it look like for us to address some of these idols in our lives is that God is calling us as a community and maybe you as an individual to stand at that fork in the road and make a decision today and to choose the road less traveled. And as we move into a time of reflection and response, we're going to express this in a tangible and physical way. In a few minutes, Scott and the team are going to come and we're going to move into a time of communion. And as we do that, I want to ask you this question. If God came to you today and asked you to respond in some way, would there be anything that would hold you back? Would you say no to Jesus because you love a current aspect of your life or your current state or comfort zone more? And you might think, well, the solution to that is, is just maybe if I should love those things just a little less and just kind of maybe try and take them out of that place of the highest place and maybe I could just love them a little less and that might help move me to the place of surrender and obedience to God. Well, the solution... Biblically speaking, for idolatry is not to love those things less, but to love the best thing more. 1 John 5.21, in his parting instructions, the Apostle John says, Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Little children, he says, keep your hearts free from idols. And so if you're here and you're exploring faith this morning... For you, that step might be actually laying down your rights in your life and the title deed to your life. You might need to say God, yes to God for the very first time here today. And if that's you, I don't want you to leave here today without addressing that and without making it right. And so we have our prayer teams that are available and Pastor Keith and I will be available for you as we move into our time of worship response. And I want you to come and talk to us and say, I've been exploring faith, I have questions, and I want somebody to pray with me today. I want to know and experience that peace that Daryl was talking about. I want to know and experience that, that level of joy that he's talking about. And that comes as we experience a surrendered life. Maybe you're early on in your Christian journey And maybe you need to address and challenge the reality of what might God be asking you to lay down so that he could be lifted up more in your life. Maybe there's other things that are competing for that priority in your life. And so God might speak to you this morning. And this might be a totally new experience for you. You might think, oh, it's just some internal monologue in my head. I've never experienced that before. But when God speaks to you, you know that you know that you know that that gentle whisper that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, asking and inviting you to lay it down again or to lay it down for the first time so that he could be lifted up in your life. And if you're a person maybe who's been a Christian for a long time, 
Perhaps it's time again this morning to reassess and ask, do I love Christ more than anything else? Do I love Christ above all else in my life? The scripture in, goes on in Philippians chapter 2 and it says, Therefore God elevated him, elevated Christ to that place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So for each of us in some way today, I'm going to suggest that today is our moment of choice. Today is the day where we come to that fork in the road where we ask the question, which path do I want to travel down? Do I want to travel and take the road that is most certainly the more difficult and challenging road? The road less taken the road that rejects the path of comfort at all costs as our highest value, and the road that says, Jesus, I want what it is that you have for me. I want what it is that you want for my life. And so we've provided a way to respond for you today. And I'm going to ask God and the team, and they'll come and begin to lead us into a communion response time. And we've got the communion tables that are set, uh, one at the far uh, left and one at the far right over here. And you may want to uh, move to the communion table first. And the communion table is a celebration of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so the bread represents his body that was broken for us. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for us. And so if you're a person of faith and you believe Jesus is your forgiver and your leader, the communion table is open to you in this place today. And as you begin to think about going and celebrating communion, you might have some internal dissonance or wrestling that's going on in your heart and in your life where you're saying, I don't know if this is, I'm at a place where I can actually do that. And I'd invite you to just process that for a little bit and think. And don't push past that and just rush into a celebration of communion. Think, well, there's other people at the table. I should get up there before the song finishes. I want you to think and ask God, is there anything that you are calling me to lay down this morning? And so we have the altar that's available for you. And we have an insert uh, that's available and pens that have been distributed around for you. You may want to just answer that question that's there on that insert and say, is there anything that you need to surrender to God this morning in your life? Just write that down. Write the steps that you feel like God is speaking to you about taking this morning. And then just take it over and lay it on the altar. Stick it into one of the rocks there. Lay it down. And then you may want to move to the communion table from there. Or you may say, you know what? I don't even know. I need to pray for courage and strength. I don't even know if I could take that step of obedience in this place this morning. Our prayer teams are available at the side. And you can go and you can pray with Tanya and Judy. Or you can go and pray with Dave and Jackie. Or you can pray with Pastor Keith or myself. And they'll be available for you to pray and, and ask God that he would give you that courage and that strength. Maybe you've got a need in your family or as you come into this season, there's something else that's going on in your life. And you say, I want to pray with somebody about that or I want to celebrate something with somebody in this place today. They'll be available for you uh, to do that. And so as we move into this time of response, you also may have brought a physical object of something that represents a barrier in your life represents 
an idol. Maybe you just need to take that to the table and lay it down. Maybe you've placed something else as the organizing influence in your life. Maybe it's a scale. You say, my body image is the thing that is so consuming me in my life and experience. I just need to lay that down. Maybe you think, I want to be a person of such importance, I carry my iPhone with me everywhere I go so that everybody knows how important I am. Maybe you need to take it to the table. Remember to take it home with you after you're finished. But maybe you just need to lay it on the table as a physical and tangible expression to say to God, you know what, you have that place of priority in my life. I'm done with organizing myself and trying to choose the path of comfort at every experience like Daryl talked about. I'm done with that. I want to make a different choice here in this place today. And so just invite God to speak to you and you can move and celebrate communion when you feel that you're ready. The scripture gives us instructions that we should prepare our hearts and be in a place of readiness to receive and celebrate that. So God, we pray for each and every person here today. I pray, God, that you would stir in our hearts and our lives an openness to hear from you and a courage to respond. And so, Father, we would express that in a position of surrender to you this morning. Would you come and have your way be first in our lives and in our community yet again this morning, God. In Jesus' name we pray.